Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. In his first volume of The Principles of Psychology, William James wrote that, quote, a man's self is the sum total of all that he can call his, not only his body and his psychic powers, but his clothes and his house, end quote. In that regard, not much has changed since 1890. Whether it's books or ceramic figurines or trading cards, people still define themselves by and take pride in what they own. And thanks to the advent of online shopping, the accumulation and replacement of that stuff has been accelerated. In 2014, 44 billion parcels were shipped worldwide. In 2017, 74.4 billion parcels were shipped. What happens to things that are deemed old or too bothersome to fix after they've been moved to the trash is the focus of Rowan Moore Garrity's story in the June issue of Harper's Magazine, which follows the journey of two ships carrying thousands of mattresses, and lots else, from Miami to an isolated Haitian town. I spoke with Moore Garrity about the evolution of stuff and its supply streams, the United States' predatory relationship with Haiti, climate change, and more. The U.S. has a weird relationship to stuff because we have shows like Hoarders, 1-800-JUNK, get rid of your junk. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think one of the things I always think about is just how abundant stuff is here, often to a point that makes it hard to describe to people from countries like Haiti. I spent a lot of time in Mozambique and one of the sort of perennial puzzles that emerges when you're talking with people around the world is, well, how do you explain poverty in a place where poverty might include TVs on the curb on trash day and furniture and beds and all kinds of things that indisputably has value or at least would have had value uh, for basically all of human history just as stuff that has a lot of craftsmanship contained in it, right? Or if not craftsmanship, you know, materials that are hard to come by materials that people spent money on. And we are also living at a time when labor, even if people aren't paid very well, is still sort of expensive in the context of any business. And so one way to look at the shipping industry that I write about between Miami and Haiti is this sort of exchange of excess stuff on the one side and excess labor on the other it sort of smacks you in the face when you set foot in one of these shipping terminals because you're just staring at mounds of mattresses and compressed bundles of used clothes and bicycles and car tires and refrigerators and stoves that it wouldn't have been worth it to have somebody repair here or to update here, even if it still works. But in Haiti, you can hire a guy to kind of freshen it up and maybe switch the pickups from a 220 volt to the 110 volt in Haiti, Haitian system. And if you're a middle-class person living in some secondary city that's expensive to ship stuff to, all of a sudden you've got a perfectly workable stove and all you had to do was pay for a day of somebody's labor. Jumping off of that, can you talk about the historical relationship between the United States and Haiti? Because that imbalance that you were just talking about seems to say a lot about both countries. One of the things I struggled with how best to convey in the piece is that there's a 
a way to read the whole landscape of shipping, as I think many people even who participate in it rightly do, as, well, what a lifeline this is. Because the whole reason this exists, at least on a superficial level, is, look, port pay which is a city in Haiti I write about uh, that's far out on the northwestern peninsula, doesn't have good road connections to the rest of the country. And so as a consequence, if you want to ship stuff there on land, you're going to beat up your truck. You're going to put a lot of money into repairs, and it's going to take a lot of time and so forth. And so what would we do? What would the economy of port pay look like if it weren't for these boats coming from Miami, right? And I even had, a, you know, there's a quote in the piece from a guy who worked sort of part-time as a stevedore there, and it was a drizzly day, and we're looking out at the boat being loaded. And he kind of looks over at me, and he says, you know, if, it, if one of these boats were to sink, the people of the Northwest would perish. <laughs> and, you know, this is a Haitian guy, right? Yeah. And I, I think in some sense he's true. And yet um, what you see if, you know, as you spend more time in Haiti and read about some of the history uh, between the U.S. and Haiti is that, the American economy, both American politicians and industrialists and aid workers and kind of everybody in between and American consumers, too, have really played a profound role in shaping the political economy of Haiti such that it's really hard to build a road to port pay such that it's cheaper to import rice from Miami than it is to grow rice in Haiti. And there are a few ways that this has happened. I mean, if you go all the way back to the 18th century when Haiti was a, a French colony and operating under a slave plantation system, it was obviously a completely brutal reality. It was also a hugely important trade center. The revolution was very bloody. It took a number of years for Haiti to win independence. And Throughout that time, the U.S. was playing kind of a double game. George Washington, I think, uh, or may have been Jefferson, but one of those early presidents was instrumental in loaning Napoleon money in order to continue to wage the war against Haiti, right? I mean, that's one motivation for the Louisiana Purchase. So I guess that would have been Jefferson. And even after Haiti won independence, if you're looking at that from the U.S., it's a really scary thing because you're thinking, wait a second, a free a republic of black men and women? How, you know, what? You yeah, know, these we... people rose up and broke their chains. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and so that's a scary reality for yeah. slave owners and their allies in the U.S. And so... Um, and being so close. And being so, so close, right? And having all these cultural ties to New mm -hmm. Orleans and, and throughout the South. And so uh, American merchants were still very anxious to continue to sell the same things, livestock, dried fish, and so forth, that they were used to selling to Haiti and the, the French planters who sort of ran the, the slave economy there, the, the plantation economy. But the government was looking and saying, well, wait a second, what happens if we give diplomatic recognition to this new black republic. We're going to legitimize something we don't want to legitimize. So in any case, there's this fraught relationship. Fast forward 100 years, and over the second half of the 19th century, the U.S. Navy seems to require less and less of an excuse to go impose its will in Haitian ports. Often they'll send you know, gunships in to say, you know, uh, force the repayment of a debt from American merchants, who, if you talk to folks on the Haitian side, side of the transaction might have said, in fact, that's not legitimate. And then by 1915, the Marines uh, decide to just go in and annex the whole place. And by the time they leave 20 years later, 
Um, the national debt is controlled by a bank in New York, and the national bank is controlled by a bank in New York. And the whole sort of industrial infrastructure project that had been at the center of the occupation is built up all the roads and so forth in such a way as to make it good for U.S.-based sugar companies and things like that. And so one more kind of final step in this evolution is just that starting in the 1950s, Haiti still had at different points a really strong agricultural export economy. Um, Coffee was 75% of their exports as late as the 1950s. Fast forward 30 years later, and it's just a tiny fraction, less than 5% of the GDP. And so what happened in between is the Haitian government under a dictator began attracting U.S. corporations. Come set up shop here. You won't have to pay taxes. We won't let your workers unionize. And we are going to be in the sort of parlance of one USAID report in the 80s, the Taiwan of the Caribbean. That industry made Haiti the number one manufacturer of baseballs, but it also sort of helped to cut the legs out from under any focus or investment in the agricultural economy. And that imbalance has just gotten worse over time. And so as Haiti has been sort of pushed by the IMF and others into this free trade world, it's been really hard for them to keep an agricultural sector um, productive when that would still employ far more people and perhaps provide a much better livelihood. So all of this kind of life-saving commerce that now lands in Puerto Pay and other places from Miami is actually the product of a really problematic history. Yeah. What you just described is true of other countries or what used to be countries in the Caribbean, like Puerto Rico or Cuba, the way that, like, if you go to Cuba as an American, you'll find out things that are really incredible, where you're just like, oh, wow, I had no idea that the CIA would be so petty as to, you know, like sort of like troll athletes who are going to some pan-Caribbean games event by flying planes very low over the ship they were riding in. But it's true because you're ta- what you're talking about is billions of dollars in a regional control that, again, is very close to the United States. It is in their interest to to set up these sorts of bad economies that are completely unsustainable. Maybe we could talk about another side of this relationship, which starts with the letter C. Sure. Um, yeah. So any having mean- acknowledged these historical slights, maybe <laughs> you know, <laughs> cocaine is never far from anyone's stereotype of Miami. And um, I actually I didn't set out to write about cocaine in any direct way. Most of the time, when you read about the Miami River, uh, which is this sort of five mile, very industrial, almost canal like waterway that really snakes through downtown Miami. Most of the time when you read about the river, it's because the Coast Guard is uh, sort of unveiling a table full of drugs. And that goes back many years. um, And a lot of it has flowed through this commerce. Um, You know, one of the shipping terminal owners I talked to tried to make the point of Of course, it's not just freighters that are involved in cocaine smuggling because there are thousands and thousands of these pleasure cruises and private yachts and so forth that arrive in South Florida from points south um, every week. And so uh, nobody's got a monopoly on the cocaine trade. But the more I sort of tried to untangle what's at the heart of the break bulk shipping industry, the harder it became to stay away from cocaine. And the reasons uh, are interesting. I mean, the 
major quandary that I was trying to figure out for part of this reporting process was the whole world is going to shipping containers and the whole world is going to shipping containers because shipping is a competitive business and shipping containers are revolutionary. You know, you can just pluck this thing off a boat, put it on a truck with a crane operated by one person and move several tons of cargo. So that's tremendously efficient and they're used almost all over the world. And yet, because Haiti doesn't have ports that are developed to the degree where they've got a deep enough harbor that they can bring in these shipping uh, container carrying boats, you've got this super labor intensive form of shipping, right? Where you need so many people to touch every sack of rice and beans yes. or every used bicycle before it makes it on board. And so I kept asking people, I mean, how can anyone make money doing this? Mm -hmm. And... It's a really hard question to answer. I mean, some people may be losing money because they just do it as remittances, right? You just sort of incur the cost, whatever they might be, to send something home once a month. But then some people are specialized business people, and you know they're making money. But the people who are running the boats, it's a much murkier equation. They've got hundreds of customers. It's almost impossible to figure out exactly what's on board headed from Haiti, excuse me, headed from Miami to Haiti. On the return trip, they all come empty, and that's a lot of gas to burn. And so what you will see is over the years, right up until the month that this article closed a couple months ago, this pattern of seizures where CBP or the Coast Guard will be taking a long look at a vessel as it comes back into American waters and enters the port of the Miami River. And there's been this very kind of sophisticated hide and seek um, that's been going on for decades and just escalates. So, you know, you'd see cocaine is welded inside these secret compartments right under the ship deck or cocaine is stuffed into these airtight uh, vacuum sealed bags in the bilge water where all the feces and urine um, goes from the ship bathrooms <laughs> or cocaine is hidden in the keel in a place where if you were trying to look for it, you would be worried if I drill six inches too far to the right, I might sink the ship. Right. But they're still finding cocaine. Um, there's still enough, I guess, plausible deniability among people who touch it in various ways that it seems like some operators are able to kind of remain aloof. And then undoubtedly, you know, not just the thousands of mom and pop businesses that are sort of powered on selling stuff from Miami down to Haiti the other way. But also, you know, it's not like you can just sort of paint with such a broad brush and say everybody's involved. And of course that's not. really unclear. You know, they, they, they've there have been busts where, you know, oh, a ship captain or a few stevedores or somebody on board is tied to it. But it's a hard picture to, to sort of get focused. And it seems like for the foreseeable future, as long as these boats are moving along that route because of where Haiti is in the Caribbean, uh, we're going to see every few months or so some headline about cocaine on the Miami River. Right. I mean, it's different types of happiness and different types of consumption, right? Like who, who can say? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> although on that, you know, what you can say uh, is that it is deeply problematic at a governance level right. to have an environment um, where cocaine can flow so freely, not because cocaine should or shouldn't be illegal, but simply because, um, as it was put to me by many people in Port-au-Pay, well, the power brokers in this city don't want a road. 
because as soon as there's a road that's a reliable connection to the capital, that means you're going to have the government more in your business. It might just mean they're more in your business because there's somebody above you in the sort of political hierarchy who wants a cut. But I think it has distorted, cocaine has sort of distorted the way that politics works in Northwest Haiti to a pretty profound degree. And you see that in in just how difficult life is there for most people. You mentioned before that there was the sh- one of the ships that you follow was seized. Has there been any more development about that? And like, what's going on? Yeah. For, so for the, this, because this is somebody's life, this is multiple people's livelihood. Sure. I found out things. I found I found a cocaine tie-in on both of the ships that I focus on in the piece. The first is that uh, the piece that I actually, or the the ship that I actually saw unloaded um, in Port de Pay had been bought by its current owner at a Treasury Department auction because a few months earlier they had discovered 2,000 pounds of cocaine welded into the deck. And so the U.S. government, they'll destroy it up to a certain value, but once a ship is worth, say, half a million dollars, it becomes worth their while to sell it. And then um, just as I was finishing up this piece, I heard rumors about the other ship, the Doris T, mm-hmm. which began its life shipping coal in England and got sort of shut down there a few years ago because of a series of safety violations. And so was re-flagged in, I think, Panama or one of these places where it's easy to register ships, regardless of wh- whatever problems they might have. Uh, I, heard, I started to hear rumors that maybe the Coast Guard and, and CBP were taking an interest in the Doris T. Uh, the last word is the you know the sort of jury's still out on that. It was an unusual kind of seizure in that it's what they call it an administrative seizure. So it was quote unquote seized, but that actually means that at least for a few days it was just sitting in the same place. And uh, I wasn't in Miami at this time, but I was told that on the afternoon it got seized. You know there are hundreds of people who had already been loading their goods in, so it comes into port. They may start to suspect there's a problem with it, but then. CBP will wave it along and say, okay, you're good. This boat is clear. You're good to start loading. And then they take a look at the paperwork a couple of days later and they say, actually, maybe not. And so now all these people who are trying to send, you know, mattresses to, uh, in the case of the people I read about, you know, mattresses to the, to the wife who's got a storefront who's, you know, making a living off of selling mattresses down there or whatever it may be, are saying, wait a second, what's going to happen to our stuff? And this is actually a pretty common area of disagreement. It's like when you see someone's storage container being auctioned off, there are all kinds of scenarios where for one reason or another, some actor who was supposed to pay somebody else in order for the boat to sort of get to where it's going didn't. And then the federal government comes in and says, pause, we're gonna just sort of pay someone to store this for the next six months. And so there are all kinds of stories about people losing their stuff in different ways. And it's actually remarkable it doesn't happen more on some level when you see all the stuff that goes into these boats. The piece opens with this very vivid description of this completely crazy dock on the Miami side. So can you, I mean, you have other stories, certainly, from what you saw there, right, that didn't make it in? More more than a particular story, I'd say, is just a kind of feast for the eyes that it is to walk in. Um, it makes it a, a hard to describe. Every time, I, the, the terminal that I focus on is called the Fifth Street Terminal. And every single day, there are dozens of cars waiting in the turning lane to get in the gate. 
And basically, everybody's always jockeying for position to get their goods loaded on the next trip. And what's puzzling about it is it's probably an acre or two of blacktop with a big warehouse. And there's more stuff there than could fit on two or three boats. (laughs) And some of it sits there for months at a time. And, you know, everybody's stuff is identified with these little spray paint symbols that, you know, each person has their one, but it's not like they're all two numbers and a letter, you know. Everything just has this kind of rough around the edges feel such that it if you've spent any time in Haiti, you know, they're, they're food vendors, the language you hear is Creole, uh, you almost feel like you've already left the country the mm-hmm. second you cross the threshold. There are a lot of people kind of milling around. It's hard to tell exactly who's working and if so, for whom. And so it's just this incredible system that at the end of the day serves thousands of customers and thousands of households on either end of the trip. But there's such chaos in the middle that you're just sort of continually impressed that the whole operation, you know, goes. Absolutely. I mean, I can almost feel it more that I can picture it, just that throb of life and the the noise and all of that. What was it like when you got to Port-au-Pay? Port-au-Pay is a city of, I think, a little over 100,000 people. It's way far out on the northwest peninsula of Haiti. Um, So getting there was a real journey. There's no public transit that goes regularly and directly. I maybe uh, made the wrong choice in taking uh, the shorter but, I guess, worse road and had four very uh, painful by the end hours on the back of a motorcycle. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's this sort of beautiful uh, backdrop of these arid mountains framing a really bright blue, uh, you know, kind of turquoise bay. And there's one port that's all old uh, sailboats that goes back and forth between um, a big island just off the coast of Port-au-Pay and the city. And then there's the sort of freighter dock, which is its own fascinating story because it doesn't even belong to the government. And so, hmm. uh, I mean, typically in most places, right, the ports would, would, would belong to the government. And there right. might be people who have a concession there. But in the 1980s, a storm came and basically blew the dock apart. And so now it's in this abandoned mini mall that you wouldn't <laughs> recognize as a mini mall until mm. you heard that story. But it's basically in this sort of concrete courtyard with a very narrow entrance where the cars come in and a very narrow entrance to go sort of go out to the water. And the thing that was most striking compared to Miami as the unloading got underway is if in Miami there were 30 or 40 people milling around and you're kind of wondering exactly what everybody's doing, I'd say at the peak of unloading that I saw in port of there were 200 inside this security perimeter, right? of the port and all the while you know you're watching these wooden dinghies that are maybe 25 or 30 feet long go you know get rowed 100 yards out to the boat there are a bunch of guys who are throwing mattresses off or using a crane to lift these cars onto the gunnels of the of the wooden dinghies and they're kind of going back and forth in this continuous loop and filling these carts piled high with mattresses and boxes and whatever and as the stuff is coming ashore, people are pointing at stoves or refrigerators or whatever and trying to sort of say, you know, how much for that? How much for this? And then there'll be this other kind of gathering where people actually present their receipts 
to get their stuff to the boat owner who's, you know, counting a huge pile of, you know, grimy bills. And so the whole scene, um, I'd say, is on one level kind of even more chaotic, but another level, um, you know, there's a quote in the piece where someone said to me, you know, the chaos is the money. And what they meant by that is, it's a market economy in the way that you think of like a street market. All the wheeling and dealing happens in person. And so being there, even sometimes for days at a time waiting for your merchandise, is sort of an important part of transacting, of cultivating the relationships that will allow you to get good rates or allow you to get somebody to look out and make sure if they see your mark that your stuff stays where it's supposed to go. So, and not just because this is a podcast, but I do have to ask, has the weird boom in like mattresses as an object for people to purchase in the United States. There's like mattress subscription services. There's all sorts of things like and and even stuff like Amazon too, where it's just like, okay, so 20 years ago, getting a mattress in a box really wasn't something that was just sort of in people's minds. But now it's starting to become that. Has the boom and I guess in like online shopping helped create a boom in this sort of sub industry? I don't think I know enough to say it. I would say that from what I learned, people have been buying and selling mattresses in incredible numbers for quite a long time. There's actually a separate port in Haiti that does have a container lifters and so forth called Miraguan, which is supposedly the mattress capital. Uh. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, my my heart aches for not having gone to Miraguan <laughs> to see the, 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 the real mattress market. But the... the number from the sleep industry trade association is that we get rid of 20 million mattresses every single year and when you see them stacked two stories high filling an area the size of a basketball court at this one small city in haiti you believe it and you know i had a a guy that i talked to who um Basically, his specialty was bringing in mattresses on the South Florida end. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he said, oh, yeah, no, no, I'll get containers. There's a turkey plant in Indiana and there's a Haitian diaspora there. And so I've got connections there. And so, you know, you mentioned the 1-800-JUNK contractors and things like that. I think that for some commodities that are a little bit easier to spot and then pull out of the waste stream, there's a pretty well-developed kind of niche vertical or a niche supply chain where you say, oh, okay, now we've got four containers full of mattresses in Orlando. We're going to get them down to Florida or get them down to Miami so we can send them, uh, you know, over the water. That's interesting that there's this waste stream. And with the exception of larger, easily recognizable items like mattresses and appliances, uh, you know, stuff that could get repaired, the rest of the stuff just continues on down. Clothing would be another exception, but... I think probably it's it's all about how much of a market is there, right? And how hard is it, how much friction is there between each step? So actually used clothing is another pretty well-developed strand in that economy. You know, you've seen the donation boxes in mall parking lots, outside thrift stores and so forth. And there is some level of sorting that happens, you know, with goodwill. I think they give away, I think they, you know, sell in their own stores something like 50% of the clothes that they get. And the other half is shipped into this international supply chain 
that if you talk to people in Haiti, in Haiti they call it uh, either, either Pepe or Kennedy. And the reason that it's called Kennedy is because it was supposedly in the 1960s that it first made landfall in Haiti. And you can still talk to people in Port-au-Prince who will tell you, oh, that's the reason that we have so few tailors now compared to what we did once did. Because, of course, if you can get just the way that none of us is walking around in tailored clothing, the second you can get a nice you know, knit jersey beefy tee for 50 cents, <laughs> you don't really need to buy your fabric by the yard. You're a big dog now. Yeah, you don't need it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's it's a tragedy for anybody who made a living tailoring. And that's yeah. the sort of the same part of the shadow of the U.S. economy that looms really large. Absolutely. Has bad weather or this increasingly erratic weather, has that impacted the economy? And how do they deal with that? Considering, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of these boats are extremely old. <laughs> As far as the like frequency of shipwrecks or, or problems and things on that level in the high seas, I don't know all that much about it. I mean, there are a couple examples in the last few years of freighters sinking in hurricanes or tropical storms. But more broadly, Haiti is definitely a, a country that, that's highly susceptible to the sort of shocks of climate change and extreme weather. And Port-au-Pay and the whole sort of surrounding region, the northwest particularly so. It is very deforested. It's been the sort of main charcoal provider, which is the cooking fuel of the country. It's been the main charcoal provider to some of the major cities going back 30, 40, 50 years in such a way that has worsened erosion and worsened the, worsened the cycle of drought and rainy season and drought and rainy season a lot. And so that's part of what's washed out the roads, which obviously makes it more expensive to ship goods. It's part of what makes crop failures more likely. You still have a you know overwhelming majority of the workforce in rural Haiti that earns a living in agriculture. And so I would say in the last couple of years, the main change that was identified to me as I went about reporting this piece has more to do with political protests and there's been a big corruption scandal that sort of roiled the capital in Haiti over the last couple of years. And it's been very bad. There's been some associated violence, and it's been very bad for the exchange rate. And so to use the example of this couple that I follow in the piece, Jean-Claude and Acela Exontus, Jean-Claude said to me at one point, and he's the one who lives in Florida, oh, once you, if you're making your money in gourd, which is the Haitian currency, it's basically worthless once you change it into dollars. So in cases like his, where the money's actually made because his wife runs a storefront in Haiti, and then she sells, the, sells stuff and sends the profits back to him in Florida so he can use it to buy more stuff, they're on really tight margins. So the exchange rate, uh, uh, the, the gourd has lost about half its value against the dollars in the last five years. Oh, um, there's another charter operator, uh, charter operator meaning a person who runs their own boat, who said to me, we have to space out our trips to no more than one a month because in Haiti, our main problem is getting enough hard currency in dollars, sort of getting enough dollars back out of the system 
so that we can take that capital back. So, you know, you, in other words, you get there, you sell, and the mattresses are actually, they're a lucrative business, so they're a business a lot of the boat owners are, are rumored to sort of keep for themselves. Uh. <laughs> so you sell 5,000 mattresses or whatever it is. And now, let's say you've got $10,000 or $20,000 in Gurt. Well, port of is a, you know, reasonable-sized city, but every money changer is like a mom-and-pop money changer. It's not like there's a Bank of America sitting on Main Street. And so their main problem, the main squeeze on their business that makes it hard for them to do more trips is just finding enough people with enough dollars, and it takes weeks. So there's just a lot of things um, that make it really hard to run a business efficiently, and it's one of the really striking insights, I think, or just revelations of reporting on this is there's just so much ingenuity and striving and determination to do anything there and make it and turn a profit. And so it's sort of a remarkable testament to that. Well, on that very inspiring note, all listeners go out and reach for your dreams. Be Haitian. Thank you so much. This Thank is a you. pleasure. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 